Good evening, everyone. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> I'm a very happy bunny because when I just look outside this building, I see clarity, bright light. Although it's not that warm, but still makes me feel glad to be here and not miserable like the past seven, eight months. <laughs> Weather-wise, I mean, oh, that's what I mean. <laughs> I should have said that. Anyway, um, uh, software technology, it's been growing very fast. That I was speaking to some of my friends who are engineer, uh, engineers in, in technology, and they were saying that perhaps in a few years' time from now, maybe not a few years, maybe 10 years, a decade, I don't know, we won't be needed to learn any other languages anymore. Perhaps we're going to have a, a watch device or a cell phone or whatever we're going to have that while we say something, it's going to use it into the appropriate language. I just wish that thing was invented now. And I wouldn't have to preach to you in English and I would use my Spanish and, and you would understand what I'm saying, but that's not possible. Anyway, I know that's, I shouldn't have said that either. Anyway. Uh, Let's go back to this letter. Well, Second Timothy was probably the last letter written by Paul. It was around 64 and 68 AD, and he wrote it during, during his second Roman imprisonment. And it seems that he had written this letter with two main purposes. The first one was to ask Timothy to come and visit him. He was saying, Timothy, come to Rome and visit me. And in chapter 4, we learn that he's going to tell him whom he is supposed to bring and what he's supposed to bring. So that was the first reason or purpose for this letter. The second one, he was trying to provide for Timothy with a final personal letter or encouragement and help in how to, how to deal with difficult situations. So it's always good to keep that in mind in our heads when we go through the book of Timothy. I'm pretty sure in every single sermon over the last series, you'll be reminded of that. So that's nothing new for you. But let's open our Bible. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 20, verse 26. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 20, 26. And this is what it says. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purpose, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the land of the Lord out of the pure heart, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know what they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be generally instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that will, they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken captive to do his will. 
So Paul has been telling, previous to this passage we just read, has been telling Timothy how to deal with some difficult problems within this within the church of Ephesus, where he was ministering. Uh, in the verses just before, he has exhorted Timothy to use the scripture properly. Not as Hymenaeus and Philetus, whose false teaching have been leading some people astray. Look what he says in verse 19 before the one we just read. This is Paul saying to Timothy, Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now as he goes on to this, he has said what a person must do. He goes on to say, and how a person can become useful to the master. And every time we discuss about useful to the master, we come to this question as how? How can we be useful to the master? What does he mean by it? Let me tell you in four different subjects what I think Paul is meaning by this. I think someone who is going to become useful to the master, therefore things that he has to do. And I think he's telling Timothy to do. I don't think this one working. The first one is like, they must work in their personal conduct by cleansing themselves. From verse 20, 21, we see that. The second thing that was, they must do is that they must flee from evil desires and pursue godliness. The third thing he says, don't worry, we're going to go through this in detail. I'm just giving you a heads up. The first thing we're going to go through is that they must avoid foolish and stupid arguments and being quarrelsome. They shouldn't be quarrelsome. And the last one, we're going to, last thing we're going to see is that they must oppose to what is wrong with kindness, patience, gentleness, and based on God's word. So basically, that's what we're going to be dealing with in the next few minutes. So the first thing a person useful to the master must do is that they must work in their personal conduct by cleansing themselves. Look what verses 20 and 21 says. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common, for common use. Paul uses the illustration that has different kind of vessels. The gold and the silver vessels are kept clean so that they may be used for special purposes, such as, you know, dinner parties or whatever you're going to use this kind of stuff. And, but he also says that the wood and clay vessels are used for common use. Common use we can define like, I don't know, maybe in the kitchen to pull a tea bags when we drink so much tea that we drink here. Or I don't know what else, uh, maybe for carry out garbage. For human waste, I don't know, whatever sin he may refer to this common use. So Paul is saying, Timothy, in so many ways, that Timothy, you and I are vessels or vessels. So what sort of use are you going to have, says Paul? And he says to Timothy, do you want to be a gold or silver vessel used for something special? Or do you want to be a cheap clay pot? He goes on to say, Timothy, there's two different things of use that we can be given. And actually, verse 21 gives us a clue of what makes the difference in between what kind of vessels can we be. Look what it says. This, Those who cleanse themselves from the latter... 
Many, many different versions of the Bible use this transla- translation of latter as common use. Some others will use discernible purposes. So he's saying like, the difference in how you're going to be, what kind of vessel you're going to be, it is whether you cleanse yourself or you don't. In this context, cleaning himself means, in the latter, in this context, means to refer to the false teaching that has been going on and was being expressed in this. It is worth noting that false teaching are not just mental errors, but there are something bad that needs to be cleansed. So cleansing themselves for a person is not just something they can choose to do, but actually the responsibility. And this is what Paul says. Paul says there are two different vessels, but you got to choose which one you are going to be. And how do you choose that? You must cleanse yourself. Whether you cleanse yourself or not, Paul says, that is your responsibility, Timothy. And you must do that. And perhaps something worse Something worth explaining here. When Paul is saying that a person needs to cleanse himself, by any means, he is not teaching that man in his own effort can atone for his own life and get rid of the sin problem. That's not what he is saying in this. Because if he was saying that, then the death of Christ would be useless and pointless. So he is saying a person needs to cleanse himself from from the latter, from these dishonorable things. But by no means he's saying that a person in his own ability has the ability to get rid of the sin problem. That is something that Jesus can do and he himself cannot do. So, but what is Paul saying then? I think Paul is saying that us, or you Timothy, can and you must avail of the means by cleansing yourself that God has provided in Christ, that is your responsibility. As an example, imagine you're working in your garden and you've been working very hard. You're just, you become kind of muddy. You've been working very, I don't know how many hours can you work. I'm not a gardener. I have no idea how you do that. But I can imagine after you finish, you are so messy, dirty, and I'm pretty sure nobody wants to hug you at that moment. So when you go inside a house, when you get to the house, you don't just I don't know, spread your arms and you begin to lick yourself and clean yourself like a cat does, does it? That's not the way we do it, is it? What do you do normally? Or don't, what do we do normally? We go inside our bathrooms, get some soap and get some water. And what do we do? We wash ourselves. Maybe we take a shower, whatever we do. So the soap and the waters are the means of the cleansing. But each one of us are the one responsible. Whether do we use them to wash ourselves, to cleanse ourselves, or we don't. What are you saying with all of this? Just to get to the point. This is a point. God provided, and we learned this in First John, that blood of Jesus as the means of cleansing ourselves from sins. How do we do that? By confessing, says First John chapter 1, 9. So we are completely clean at the moment that we trusted Jesus as Christ's Savior. That's something that happens once and forever, says the Bible. But at the same time, 
we daily go into the world that is corrupted, that is sinful. So and we do get, I don't know, surrounded by sin. And then, let me tell you something you probably don't know. I'm pretty sure you do. We do sin as well. So Paul said, Paul says that we must cleanse ourselves. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross cleans us forever. That's true. But Paul says that you also must cleanse yourself by constantly confessing your sins, constantly having a good relationship with God so that you are using the means in order for you to cleanse yourself. That's what Paul is trying to say. So confession of sins must be a habit in our lives for cleansing ourselves. And cleansing, as I said before, is our own responsibility. Is that very clear? I hope so. Again, we don't get rid of the sin problem or our own efforts. That's only Jesus can do that. But what we can do, we take the means, meaning the sacrificial death in Christ, confessing our sins, and through that, says Paul, we can be cleansed from our own sins. But anyway, so cleansing ourselves is our responsibility. The second thing Paul goes to say is that cleansing ourselves, oh, by cleansing themselves, these people, and useful for the master people, it cleans themselves, they become holy, which is another word for sanctify. The word here, described as made holy, is a word that means set apart for God. It is used three times in the Bible. The first one is used in a context of there is a positional sanctification. If you read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, you're going to learn that. What is position, positional sanctification? It is that through the death of Christ, believers have been sanctified once and for all. Look what it says, Hebrews 10, 10. And by that will, we had been made holy to the sacrifice of the blood, of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That is positional sanctification. It means that in God's eye, through Jesus Christ, the moment we trusted in Him, we are sanctified. But there is also a progressive sanctification. What does it mean? Is that as we grow in Christ, we progressively grow to be conformed to His image. You can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 1. This is what is Paul, Paul himself saying this. This is what he says. Listen to what he says. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, performing a holiness out of reverence for God. So Paul is saying a person who cleans himself, he's going to become sanctified. They are made holy. So there is three different kinds of holiness or sanctification. The first one is the one made by Jesus. That is positional sanctification. We've been sanctified through him, through his death once and for all. The second one Paul says in 2 Corinthians is something that, has to, that happens progressively, that we all become holy. And the last one, it is ultimate sanctification, which is actually going to happen once Jesus is back and we see him as he is. And according to what he says in 1 John, we'll be like he is. This is what he says in John's Chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. All who had this hope in him purify themselves, cleanse themselves, just as he is pure, just as he is cleansed. Again, 
Paul is saying that those who cleanse themselves, they will become sanctified. I think for the context of what's happening here, Paul is describing the process of progressive sanctification. That's sanctification that happens in a daily basis in our lives. We must be growing in the process of being separated from the doctrinal and moral evil. Remember what was happening there throughout the letter. Graham was telling us like a week, two weeks ago. Uh, Neil was telling us again the last week ago, uh, a week ago, what was happening there. There was a lot of doctrinal error. And I think what Paul is trying to sell to cleanse ourselves, he's saying, keep yourself away from these sort of type doctrinal errors. Go in this process of progressing sanctification, trying to be more like Jesus every day. I think that's what he means when he says, by cleansing ourselves, we become holy, we become sanctified, set apart as clean best for the Lord. So the next thing that the cleansing does is like, by cleansing ourselves, a person who wants to be useful for the master, they become useful to the master. Master is the Greek word from which we get our word despot. I know despot sometimes it means very bad, but in the contents, it emphasizes Christ's absolute lordship. Paul's point here is that dirty vessels are not useful to the master. Imagine you go to a restaurant, and when you are given a table, you go and sit there, and when the person brings the utensils, or the utensils are on the table, then you realize that utensils are messy and dirty. There are some leftover rice, there are some leftover juice, and whatever they are. How do you get? You get cross, don't it? You're like, please, just dear, don't know, waiters, waiter, would you dare to come and change these utensils because I don't want to use them? What happens here is that in the same way, no dirty vessels or dirty utensils, nobody wants to use them. In the same way, dirty people, people who do not cleanse themselves, they are not useful to the master by not means. So Paul is saying, so you want to be used to the master? What do you have to do? Cleanse ourselves. Because he is only going to use those who cleanse themselves. Is it getting there? So the dirty ones are never useful. And in the same way, in our mice embrace, we're going on again for false teaching. Imagine our mice embracing false teaching. Paul is saying, if you embrace into it, and your lives are tainted by sin, there is no way that you are going to be useful for the master. And Paul is saying, by cleansing ourselves, that is your responsibility, by cleansing ourselves, you become sanctified. And by cleansing ourselves, you also, what? You become useful to the master. And the last thing he says in this part is that by cleansing ourselves or by cleansing themselves, somebody who wants to become useful to the master as well become prepared, this says Paul in the last part of verse 21, they become prepared to do any good work. It's not only useful to the master that we gain by cleansing ourselves, but also prepare for any good work. And in a context, I think prepare or being prepared here, it's the idea of being willing and being ready. Clean vessels are there waiting for the master to come and pick them up. 
to use them. Going on with the same example of the restaurant. The dirty ones are in the table, but the clean ones are waiting there, separated in a place, waiting for the waiter to go and get it so they can be used. So prepare to do any good work. It's one of the rewards we get by being cleansed, being cleansed ourselves. So by cleansing ourselves, what do we get? It is a responsibility. Cleansing ourselves, what else, what, do, what else do we have? We are made sanctified. By cleansing ourselves, what else it is? That we become useful to the master. And by cleansing ourselves, what else? We are prepared for any good work. So that is the importance of being cleansers or cleanser, cleansing ourselves. That's a very difficult word in English, I would say. It would be a lot easier in Spanish, but again, this is not, I shouldn't be doing that point or often, but anyway. So they must work in their personal conduct by cleansing themselves. The second thing they must do is that they must flee. Look, verse 22. They must flee from evil desires and pursue godliness. There are here two strong commands. The first one is flee, or to flee. And the second one is to pursue. Timothy is to flee from evil desires or youth and pursue godliness. Here Paul describes godliness in verse 22. Lord says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. And he defines righteousness as, he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord out of pure heart. I think by defining righteousness, faith, love, and peace, with those who call on the name of the Lord out of pure heart, I think you say you must pursue godliness. I think godliness is involved and involves like righteousness, involves faith, involves love, and on. So the first thing he says in here, they must flee from evil desires of youth. We usually associate this with that this term with to flee in a way from desires of youth or evil desires or youthful lust, as some of the translation says. We associate this with sexual temptations. But to be honest, given the context. Maybe those temptations are not always present in every man. I don't think the main issue here is sexual temptations that some people would assume. I think given a country or something more, I think what Paul is trying to say through this flee from evil desires of you that that I think he's referring to sinful desires. So while sex, by sexual temptation may be included in evil desires, I don't think it's the main focus. Rather, again, what Paul is trying to say, I think, he's referring to wrong desires, wrong things they want to use. Those things that younger men are more vulnerable than older men are. Calvin used to say this, he understood this way, that these evil desires of youth are the propensity of younger men to lose their tempers and rush forward a heated argument with more confidence and rashness than men of their older age. So Timothy is going to be facing a lot of bad teaching, a lot of fast teaching, and he must stand firm to defend his faith against serious error. But he is not to be arrogant, 
about how much he knows. Impatiently to us, those in error, or being quarrelsome or assertive. Rather, he says, they must flee themselves for these attitudes. Whenever he's going to go and face somebody like that, Paul is saying, you must be tempered, you must be correct. I think rather than describing sexual issues in here, I think he's saying, flee away from those desires a young man has to fight and become superior to anyone, to think they know everything when they are just young. I think in so many ways that's what he's saying. And he says not only to flee from this, this desires of youth, but also says you must pursue godliness. And as he had said before, godliness is defined as righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Fleeing and pursuing are totally different things. They are totally opposed to one another. It is not enough just he has to flee from these evil desires. He must pursue godly character. He must pursue godliness. The first thing he says, describing the godliness, he says, must pursue righteousness. This is basically behaving according to what God's word says. God's word is not unclear about how we should live and behave. It doesn't offer us helpful hints on how to live. Rather, it gave us commands. It gives us authority. It says, this is the way you're gonna, you're gonna behave. The Bible doesn't say, well, you may choose to behave this way, you may not choose to behave this way. But rather, the Bible says, you must live this way. And I think Paul is giving us another command and saying, you must pursue righteousness. So live according to what the Bible says. And live in that way. The second thing he says, they must pursue faith. And the Greek word, the Greek word here means faithfulness. So it means that you are trustworthy and reliable. When someone gives you a job, a person who wants to be useful for the Lord must be counting on to do that. Somebody who wants to be useful to the Lord has to be reliable. Somebody you must depend on. Can you imagine if they asked me to come and preach today if I half five or six, I just call John or Graham and say, I'm sorry, man, I totally forgot I'm playing football. Uh, I'll deal with that. That is no reliability at all. And Paul is saying, pursue faith or faithfulness. It also means faith in so many ways as well. So a person who wants to be useful for the master must trust that God is God and let him be him. The next thing he says about he has to pursue in, in godliness, he says, pursue love. I know we are going very slow, but it is one of those small passages that are probably the ones who give the more headaches to the preachers. Because you never know how much can you go, but you have to go all the way in. And that's what I've been told today. So I have to go all the way in. So pursue love, he says here. One of the things that people tend to assume, you probably know it, that everyone is very loving people. Everyone, oh, I'm a very loving person. I'm a loving person. I love everyone. But actually, that's no reality. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are all selfish. And we are all like, in so many ways, lovers ourselves. We always think in ourselves, always think the way we want to do. Rather, Paul says, somebody who wants to be useful for the master, what he has to do? Must pursue love. Must consider themselves less and consider some others first. Before he's thinking, what do I get, what, what do I get here? He's thinking, what am I willing to give? What am I willing to do? How can, how can I love this person in a way I want to be loved by this person. Paul is saying you must pursue love. 
How do you pursue love? Think and put the other person first. And then go on yourself. Jesus said, treat, a, treat another, treat different people, treat another one in the same way that you want to be treated yourself. So, a use, somebody who wants to be useful for the master must pursue love. And the next, the last thing he says, they also must pursue peace. And peace is something that doesn't usually happen. Peace doesn't happen for accident. Peace is not something you just go and buy in the, the corner store that you find in your block and neighborhood. Peace is something you must pursue. Peace is something you must work onto it. Those who are married and know their partners, whenever they go to split a fight, know how hard, very, very hard to pursue peace it is. You really must work hard to do it and to gain it. And Paul is saying, if you really want to be someone useful to the master, you must pursue peace. And why is he saying this? Because Paul knows all the issues that are happening with false teaching. He knows at some point, Timothy is going to have to stand. And he's going to have to defend his faith. But even in the way he does it, he says, you have to pursue peace. You have to make sure that what you want from these people is for them to realize their mistake and not for you to win an argument. They need to pursue peace with one another. That's what it says in the second part. Along with those who call upon the name of the Lord of pure heart. We know as Christians, even in our home church, even when we all love the Lord, sometimes there is misunderstandings. Sometimes we don't get along very well. Sometimes we didn't like how the coffee was made. Sometimes we don't like what the preacher was saying. Sometimes we don't like the kind of accent this guy is saying. And sometimes they don't produce anything. But sometimes they do produce a big misunderstanding. And Paul is saying, when those things happen, among those who love the Lord and, and call him upon uh, pure hearts, he says, you have to be, make peace with them. And it's not easy. But Paul says, if you do that, then you become useful to the master. That is the only way you're going to do it. Anyway, I'm going very slow and it's nearly time to finish. Uh, <laughs> the next thing we're going to go, I'm, I need to catch up anyway. So the next thing we're going to do is like, the next thing that someone who wants to be useful for the master has to do, they must avoid, verse 23 and 24, they must avoid foolish and stupid arguments and being quarrelsome. Look in your Bibles at the moment, in verse 14 of this chapter, and look what he says about his stupid arguments. Look what he says. If people quarrels, verse 14, if people quarrels over words, it is not of, it is of no value and only ruins those who are listening. Look what he says in verse 16 about his stupid arguments. Godless chatters leads people into ungodliness. Look what it says in verse 17. Their words wrongly used will spread like gangrene. Paul is saying those who want to be used by be used by the master, they must avoid this foolish and stupid arguments. The definition of foolish and stupid arguments bring what do they bring? We see it again. They bring in verse 14 ruin. In verse 16, they bring ungodliness. In verse 18, they destroy the faith of sons. 
And here in verse 23, look what it says. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they, you know they produce, what they produce? Quarrels. Paul, Paul knows that somehow, even in the way he's serving, quarrels are going to happen. And he's telling Timothy, he's telling to Timothy, do not do that. Avoid those kind of stupid nonsense things because they produce ruin on people. They're going to give you a headache. They're going to bring bad things to you. But the question or the thing to say is like arguments and these kind of things will always happen. But what do you need to do when these things happen? I think Paul is giving in so many ways some advice to it. If correction must be needed, they must be done wisely. Some issues Paul says, I know, I think I assume Paul is saying that there are no worth dealing with. As I said before, he says, do not have anything to do, verse 23, with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. I think he's talking about those who are, who are getting into fruitless and doctrinal controversies in the church. Those who are arguing for silly issues. He's saying, do not let those silly issues that have nothing to do with the faith become something that you fight for. The question is, how do we determine whether an issue is foolish and stupid argument or whether it's something that matters that we really have to press on? I think there are quite a few things, that, a few questions we should ask ourselves. I was talking to one of my friends and a pastor friend of mine, and this is a suggestion he was giving me. This is not mine. He says, whenever you see an issue that perhaps needs, you don't know whether you should press on, you should fight for, you should have argue for, he says, ask yourself these questions. This is quite a few questions he has. Is anyone being disobedient to God's word and what's happening here? Another question he says, what is happening here is this, is this a major doctrinal error? Some doctrinal errors are essentials to the Christian faith and they must be fought. But there are some issues that they don't really need to be addressed. There are some issues we don't really have to argue with because our salvation is not dependent on them. And then, so Paul is saying, those issues, just avoid it. Don't try not to go there. Just walk away from there. Walk away, Timothy. That is the way to do it. And perhaps the, the other question we should always ask is like, what is the point of having this argument here? Am I just doing it because I want to win an argument and say I know more than everybody else? Or when I'm going to go into this argument... I'm considered that this person needs to know and learn so can serve the Lord in a better way. I think probably those are good pointers to have in our heads whenever we have to go through this. If we're gonna, we're gonna have an argument, we're gonna go into these times when we're gonna have to stand with difficult situations. The next thing he says that if correction is needed, has, he has to avoid quarrelsons. Quarrelson is a person who is always willing to argue and argue and argue, who is always trying to find the dots in the eyes, is always trying to see what is wrong. He doesn't like what your hair is. He doesn't like the way you dress. He doesn't like so many things. I don't know. I'm just giving silly examples. I know, but you kind of have a better idea what quarrelson is. We don't have the word quarrelson in Spanish. That's why I have to come up with ways to explain it. But quarrelson is somebody who likes fighting, likes arguing over words. And Paul says to Timothy, a person who wants to be useful by the master, they don't have to do it. They have to avoid it. You cannot correct anyone if you're an antagonistic person. The most effective correction takes place when the other person knows that they are being corrected 
because you're really loving and caring for them. So you must determine always before you go to the other person whether this is an error who is worth arguing or not. Doesn't really matter. Has to do with the faith or not. This person is going to lose their soul. Or is, is this person saved by, by believing this? Or this person is not saved by believing this? And then you have to fight for it. Paul is saying to this guy, Timothy, do not avoid yourself from foolish and stupid arguments. Do not fight which football team this church has to support. We all know it's hard. Anyway, but do not fight for that. No, that's a joke. Do not fight for that, says Paul. That is not important. That is not relevant. But there are some things that you must stand for. If someone believes that baptism is necessary condition for salvation, that's an issue you must fight for. Because we all know it's not. It's part of a testimony, a symbolic testimony of our faith. But it doesn't add up everything. Just forget an example. I don't want to go into baptism at the moment. I'm just giving you an example of what Paul is saying. So he's, he's saying then that there are these three things as we have seen before. And the last one, he said, we're going to finish. We were supposed to finish two minutes ago according to my plan, but we're probably going to go for another five. I'm really sorry. The last thing he says is somebody wants to be useful to the master. What do they need to do? They must oppose to what is wrong with kindness, patience, gentleness, and based on God's war. Look what he says from verse 24b and on. Oh, 24, I'm sorry. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, nor sinful. Opponents must be gentle instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So the first thing he says, if you're going to oppose to something that is wrong, Timothy, you must do it with kindness. The Greek word for kindness comes, it has a similar translation to male. Paul uses this in First Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 7, where he describes himself as, he compares himself to a nursing mother. Tenderly, he says, is like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own child. We often think that correction must be harsh. But Paul says, it has to be very kind, says Paul. The next thing that Paul says, if you're going to oppose something that is wrong, you have to have patience with it. Perhaps it's worth noticing that Paul never says that we'll never face opposition, we'll never face criticism, we'll never face wrong teaching, we'll never face false teaching. Paul at any moment says that that's not going to happen in the church. Actually, those who are in ministry know that happens almost every other day. But rather, what Paul is saying is things like, that is kind of expected that's going to happen. That's why he's telling to Timothy, this is the way you're going to do it. So a good servant, useful to the master, must be very kind in the way of dealing with it, even when he knows he's right, the other person is wrong. If you are impatient with somebody is mistaken, you won't be able to bring this person back. And you lose the ability to, create, to correct someone effectively. 
I know this is a lot of instructions here, but that's the way that Paul was addressing to Timothy. He's a young servant. Young, he's been there in ministry nearly about 10 years, serving in the church. And there is a lot of things going on with false teaching. And he's to know this. He's got to know these things. And why are we reading these things today? Because those things even were relevant in that church in Ephesus back in the day. That are still relevant in our lives. We are not all preachers and teachers. But we are all believers. And we are all, we all want to be useful to the master. So we need to know these kind of things. The next thing he says, you're going to be opposing something that is wrong. You must do it with gentleness. The word used by gentle is used in secular Greek to refer to horses. To a horse that had been broken down. It was strong and powerful, but now it's in complete submission to its master. He's no longer wild, but now he's controlled by what the master wants him to do. So the biblical word may include behavior or speech as well. So what Paul is saying that a gentle person is sensitive and complete submission to the master will. He is not acting on his own self will. Paul is saying, if you are gonna, if you want to be useful to the master, you must be gentle, even in the way you treat to people. Do not act in the way as you are thinking, this is something I just came out with, but act in the way, says Paul, according to what the master wants. What does the master wants? He wants you to do what he is telling you to do. We'll get to this. So, the very last thing we're gonna be seeing is, that he asks in the last verse that whenever you're going to oppose something that is wrong, you must be opposing, 25 and 26, sorry. You must be opposing with, based on God's war. Paul says that the Lord's servant must be able to teach. By teaching means he's not going to teach what the new, I don't know, what good book and studies you use here? I don't know. Whatever good or math you're going to teach. I don't know. He's not going to teach. He's not going to teach what, how good is calligraphy, orthography. He's not going to teach history. What is a good servant of God is going to teach? He's going to teach the word of God. So he's saying, whenever you're going to correct, whenever you know, you're going to be opposing something that is wrong, you must work on the, what the Bible says. The word described as instructed in verse 25 refers to giving instruction and correction or, or even discipline to a child. So, a person who wants to be useful by the master, he must, he has to be able to teach. I think this is more a quality of teachers and preachers, but in so many ways it does apply to us, because we do have to study and learn our Bibles as well. So, he must be prepared, he must prepare himself. He is a teacher. And teachers requires prepara- teaching requires preparation. His work is to teach the Bible, the gospel in the Christian life. So he has to use words, but he has to use them well. We already seen what happens when bad words are used. What happens with all the bad chatters? What happens with all the quarrels? What happens with all the stupid and foolish arguments? So a person who's going to be useful for the master must be, they have to be able to teach. In order to do that, they must prepare themselves. But what does he need to know to be able to teach? He must know the truth, which is the truth of the Bible. Look what it happens in, just for this, a finishing example. In verse 18, Paul is describing the, to Timothy that he is facing some false teaching. He is describing what was happening there. Look, and he's describing a Hymenaeus and Philetus. And they were saying, uh, Neil was saying that this last week as well, I stole some of his lines here, that 
Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying that the resurrection or that resurrection have already taken place. We don't really know what they were saying exactly. We don't know the right words. But that's what Paul says, that those two were saying that the resurrection has happened. And perhaps they were saying this, but we don't know what, what exactly words were. But perhaps they were teaching something that heard from Paul, but they were teaching in a very bad way. Quite a few times, remember that Paul quite a few times hasn't spoken about the resurrection in his letter to the Colossians. In his letter to the Colossians in one level, he says, because the believer, because Jesus is risen and his people, the believer are united with Jesus and his death and his resurrection, Paul says that his people are risen with him. So in so many ways he's saying, yeah, we, in so many ways we are risen with him through the faith. And, but so, but in principle, what Paul is, what Paul was teaching is that believers shares the resurrection that is in Christ. But by no any means, I think Paul was trying to say that the resurrection of the body has happened yet. But I think that's the issue with, with Hymenaeus and Philetus. Because they were saying that the resurrection has happened and that resurrection they were teaching that was false have some implication with the way they were behaving, they were using their bodies. And Paul has already, quite a few times in the Bible, talked about the resurrection, saying that we are united with Christ, and in so many ways, we are with Christ in his resurrection. But by no any means, Paul was saying that the resurrection of the body of the believer has happened. Because that's something that's going to happen when Jesus is back. We are still waiting for that. Because if you look at your body, you look at my body, you realize we don't have glorified bodies yet. We look kind of old, we are getting older every day, we are not happy, we get tired, uh, don't know what is the way we look, but you know our bodies are not glorified yet. But how do we know this? How do we know that this is true? Because we know what the Bible says. And a good teacher, somebody who is able to teach and wants to be useful for the master, needs to know this. Timothy needed to know this in order to face Hymenaeus and Philetus has to be based on the Bible. The last thing that Timothy, in the same way, does he says that those who opponent, verse 25 and 26, opponents must be gentle instructed in the hope that God will grant the repentance leading them to the knowledge of the truth. When he says those need to come to the knowledge of the truth, perhaps he is talking about unbelievers. Since Paul uses this very consistently on unbelievers in his pastoral letters. It's someone who professes, professes to know Christ, but persists in heretical teaching or godless behavior. Perhaps his claim is false. Even when, in quite a few times, Hymenaeus and Philetus were meant to be people preparing for ministry. What they were saying was totally wrong. And he compromised the faith. And Paul is telling to Timothy, you must stand against that. You must go and talk to them with kindness, with love. Let them see clearly that that is mistaken. And he says in the last part that perhaps God is going to grant, is going to grant them repentance so they can realize their error and come and repent for them. But one of the things we have to understand with repentance It's only granted by God, that's what Paul says. And that will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant it repentance. 
is only God who does and produces repentance. It doesn't matter how many hours I work on my sermon. It doesn't matter how many books of the Bible I know. It doesn't matter how many times, how many books I've written on my own. Whenever I'm teaching or preaching to someone, it is not my ability, it is not my skill, it is not your ability, it is not your skill who produces repentance, says Paul. It's only God. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that was probably so liberating from Timothy. And that's perhaps so liberating for us that a a person's repentance doesn't hang on me, doesn't hang on you, hangs on God and in His grace. If He grants repentance to someone, He will, God will be glorified by the person's turning from the sin, from sin to Christ. If He will hold repentance, He will be glorified in His justice and condemning this person to the judgment because they refuse to repent. So that is what Paul was saying to Timothy. Timothy, you want to be useful to the master. This is what you have to do. There's no other way, Timothy. You must clean yourself, work in your personal conduct. Cleanse yourself. It's your responsibility. You must be holy, you must be sanctified. How do you do that? By cleansing yourself. Timothy, you must... You become useful to the master and you cleanse yourself. And you're going to be prepared for any good work to cleanse yourself. And Paul says, Timothy, flee from evil desires and pursue godliness. What is godliness? Is Christ. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Also, avoid these stupid, it's foolish arguments and stop being quarrelsome. And finally, Paul says to Timothy, opposed to what is wrong with kindness, patience, godliness, and based on what God's word says. At the end of the day, it's only God who's going to do this. That is what he was dealing with in this last six verses of this passage. Let's bow our heads and pray. But we do know that there is a strong desire in our hearts to be used by you. We all want to be used by you. We all want to be involved in doing something for your glory, Lord. But Paul was describing here so many requirements that somebody who wants to be useful by the master has to do. Let us learn to what happened to Timothy and the way he was instructed. And let us continue growing by the day, Father. This is progressive sanctification we are talking about. This is a, a daily act of repentance or confessing our sins, Lord. This is desire and diligence in the way we study the Bible. This is grace and humility in the way we treat other people. And this is hope as well, Father. That while we will do all those things, those people who are surrounding us, who don't know you, may come to repentance. Or perhaps not. But it's so liberating to know that is only you, the one who does it. Let us be used by you and useful for your glory, Lord. Amen.